Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Confederate monuments represent competing visions of history to different people. Some see the monuments as honoring the dead, others see them as symbols of white supremacy. These opposing views have resulted in legislative maneuvering to preserve the statues, legal battles to remove them, and rowdy crowds taking matters into their own hands. In her latest book, Karen L. Cox, a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, analyzes the various efforts to either preserve or to protest and remove Confederate monuments. The book, No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice, is published by the University of North Carolina Press, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor Cox to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be with you. You recently wrote that after 30 years of researching the subject, you were, quote, sick of talking about the damn monuments. <laughs> and yet you've written this book, and, and surprisingly, it's published by a North Carolina press. Yeah, well, they published a couple of other books of mine. So, um, yeah, so, you know, I had been ever since uh, the uh, Unite the Right rally in, um, in Charlottesville, I had been writing publicly about Confederate monuments and, and their connections to uh, racial justice issues that are, are contemporary ones. And I'd been on the road a lot speaking about them. And I just was kind of sick of it, honestly. But um, there was a couple things changed my mind, one of which was a, a meeting that I attended. I was invited to speak to a group, uh, interracial group in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, I was just I was buoyed by that. I thought here is there's there are people out there who are, are who genuinely want to understand the issue. Uh, and are looking for uh, a resource. And so that's really what pushed me uh, to go ahead and write this book. And along the way, I learned, um, you know, a much, the much broader history of these statues. And you say it's important that you're a Southern white woman, not a Northern liberal. <laughs> I'm a Southern liberal. That's not, not as that we're welcoming here either, but, but in some circles, but um, yeah, I think the fact that I grew up in this region and I know the history and I know the people I'm dealing with um, on, on either side uh, that I can speak to this with some uh, honesty and sincerity and um, but also, also as a historian of this region and which I know very well. And so I, I you know, I feel like I can do that. I mean, often, uh, you know, academics are, are dismissed, you know, as, as you have some outsiders that are trying to tell us what to do you know, uh, about these, uh, about our issues or problems. And uh, this is, it's not the case with me. And, and so that's, that's part of, you know, my strategy when I actually go to speak is to lay out the fact that I, that I'm one of them. I'm one, I'm someone who grew up here. Immediately after the Civil War ended, didn't supporters of the Confederacy begin to reimagine the history of the war? Yeah, I, I would, I would say they were, you know, revising the narrative immediately about what the Civil War had been about. Uh, you know, the, and the, and the it, phrase "the lost cause" was invoked a lot. Correct. Yeah. So the lost cause was coined by a Richmond journalist um, in in a book called "The Lost Cause" and laid out some ideas there that I think that were uh, expanded on by 
generations of Southerners after the Civil War and basically says, you know, this war was not about slavery. It was about states' rights and that the only reason that the, the, the South lost the war was because the North had uh, more war material and more men to fight in you know, the war, um, that slavery had been relatively benign institution, you know, that, um, uh, and so, and then, you know, other parts of this narrative include, you know, this hero worship of Robert E. Lee and, 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 and uh, other leaders of the Confederacy. And so essentially they, they are writing a revisionist history that's really a, a mythological narrative that bears no relation or uh, resemblance to reality. Are they ashamed of their complicity in slave ownership, or are they just in denial? Well, they're they're in denial. I mean, they would just say this, you know, it wasn't that bad of an institution that, you know, uh, they would they say things like, you know, white uh, white uh, men and have brought Christianity to these quote unquote mm-hmm. African savages. I mean, they they see this as 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 a you know, something benign and, and, and do not, you know, they, they don't want to say that they fought a war to preserve slavery. They will say that in the generations following, they don't want that assigned to them, but um, they also, uh, you know, I mean, they were fighting uh, free, you know, this, the whole idea of freedom from, from the outset, there was, there was a lot of violence and there were efforts to, short of slavery to to technically re-enslave uh, African-Americans through things like vagrancy laws. They say, if you can't prove that you have a job, uh, we'll put you to back to work on this plantation. Um, or arresting can, people and yes. then having them do work because they are now uh, prisoners, even though they may not have committed a crime. Exactly. And so say someone couldn't prove them they had a job and uh, a white landowner would say, pay the, the fine uh, for their arrest, and they would have to pay that off by working on that plantation. So there were ways in which uh, the white South was uh, trying to hold on to the institution um, while also it, you know, recasting this narrative of, of the Confederacy. Does it continue to this day? We still hear the phrase, the lost cause. Yeah, well, it's uh, yeah, we hear the phrase the lost cause. I think it's mostly coming from people like me, historians, which mm-hmm. what we hear today that is uh, that is a myth of the lost cause and what's more disturbing. And we hear it from politicians, which is that uh, the Civil War was not fought over slavery. It was fought over states rights. But they don't finish that sentence. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know what the real story is. Uh, the. uh Abraham Lincoln didn't free the states, he freed the slaves. Uh, Approximately how many Confederate monuments are there in the South and are they distributed evenly across the Southern states? That's that's an excellent question. We know that there were approximately 800 built. Okay, there's give or take. And um, of those about 100 have been removed, which leaves 700. Uh, and it just, uh, it, it depends. I think that, you know, I, Virginia obviously will have quite a few, um, as does Mississippi. I think, you know, I'm not sure what the uh, state-by-state breakdown of that is. 
Well, they uh, were first mostly in the deep south, weren't they? And then uh, the majority of the monuments were built between 1890 and 1920 uh, as uh, as uh, the northern, the more northern southern states started building monuments. So what was uh, historically significant about that period, the 1890 to 1920, the, those 30 years? Yeah, well, uh, primarily, um uh, it's the United Daughters of the Confederacy for, you know, from my perspective here uh, related to these statues, because that was the organization of women, uh, middle and upper class white women in the South who are, uh, were responsible for erecting all those monuments. And, and this is a period of Jim Crow. The 1890s is a period of, you know, racial violence of, uh, dialing back the progress of reconstruction, eliminating uh, black men from voting through a series of laws and, um, you know, legalizing segregation. So, but it, it's during that period with those things as the backdrop when these uh, monuments, uh, the vast majority were built and were primarily being built on the grounds of courthouse lawns or on, on courthouse lawns and at, at state capitals. Well, that, that followed uh, the earliest monuments being built in cemeteries. Uh, and uh, did that tradition began as bereavement and remembrance of, and then turned into a kind of defiance, defiant justification for secession? Yes. I mean, it, it, you know, it's interesting because uh, immediately the uh, women's uh, ladies memorial associations, they were called built, you know, created these Confederate cemeteries and left on purpose a, a space in the center of these graves to put a monument. So that was the original idea was to honor the dead. And then, then they move outside. And once reconstruction is over in 1877 and all the and federal troops have left the region, the monuments become uh, more central and, and more public and uh, on, you know, on thoroughfares. Uh, in the South, you have, and then of course the apex of that is are those monuments along uh, Monument Avenue, which began with the big uh, equestrian statue with Robert E. Lee that was unveiled in 1890. Um, okay. So, yeah. And as you point out, courthouse lawns. Uh, where, how did the uh, United Daughters of the Confederacy obtain uh, the millions of dollars that were spent on these statue projects? Did they get them uh, from donors, or were they appropriated from state and local governments? This is a it's a combination of all of that. They could do, you know, a small monument, a local monument, uh, might maybe only say fifteen hundred to five thousand dollars, let's say, um, and so they could be. It would be a combination of things. It would be, you know, they would the UDC would raise a certain amount of money, and then expect that the county government would make donate its share. Uh, to that. Um, at the state level, those are much more uh, significant in size and cost. Uh, they could have been a, a statewide campaign of fundraising, but there would be an expectation um, that there would be some money uh, coming from the legislature. And of course, then they're, they're the, the grandest of these monuments, which are region-wide monuments. Those aren't like the Robert E. Lee Memorial Monument, uh, but also the Jefferson Davis Monument that once was stood there on Monument Avenue, as well as one in um, Arlington uh, National Cemetery uh, that, that if it had to be built today would cost somewhere between one and a half and $2 million. Um, 
and that is a campaign that was region wide. Um, but I'm sure you know they, the UDC were essentially political lobbyists. They knew how to shake the trees and get money. There were rituals associated with Confederate monument unveilings and. Uh, the dedication ceremony of a Confederate monument in Augusta, Georgia in 1878, just not that many years after the end of the Civil War, was attended by around 20,000 people. What was the celebration like and what did it mean to those people who attended? Well, you know, it's sort of a, in some ways, a reclamation of Southern honor in, in a way of white Southern honor. Um, there, it, it's accompanied by a military parade of all various kinds of groups. Uh, uh, you know, children are all, always involved in these in these uh, rituals and ceremonies. And then there are speeches, and the speeches are given by former Confederates. There's also it's also being attended by every leading politician in the state, or that you know the, the governor or even the governor's representative. So. So it's very official. Uh, there's, you know, the town is is uh, covered in Confederate flags, uh, battle flags, et cetera. And it's about, uh, again, I think it's about reclaiming the honor of, of you know, of of the Confederacy. Uh, and, and 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 built into that is is are just like lost cause narratives about, you know, that the war we didn't fight the war to preserve slavery, or we didn't. You know that uh, it, you know that these men are heroes, and 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 most of all, I think they want to to uh, be very very clear that um, one of the things that white men accomplish immediately after the the Civil War, which is really what they're referring to, is the Ku Klux Klan and violence, the Reconstruction violence, is that they reestablished, as they would have called it, Anglo-Saxon supremacy. Didn't many cities in the South, Augusta, Richmond, New Orleans, compete to, to build the grandest memorials? <laughs> so this was also yeah. about, about civic pride. Yeah, there's, there is an element of that. And also, you know, there's lots of competition to be the first, to be the biggest, you know, especially to honor uh, Lee, um, Robert E. Lee. So there were two Lee Monument Associations, one in New Orleans and one in Richmond, um, that that erected uh, enormous monuments, and so the uh, the early one was New Orleans in 1884. They got uh, they they got ahead of the uh, of Richmond in that regard, and uh, and so, and that was the monument uh, that was brought down in New Orleans um, just a few years ago, uh, and as well as and then the and, and that was mostly the fundraising came locally in New Orleans, uh, and then the uh, the Lee Monument in Richmond was uh, fund fundraising was done regionally, and uh, part of the reason that that got bogged down a little bit was because men weren't, <laughs> to be frank, white men in the South weren't good at fundraising, not as good as the women were, and and they had been doing this, you know, uh, since the end of the Civil War, and when it came down to uh, if we're going to get this project completed, uh, these Confederate veterans realized they're going to have to turn to the women to help get it done. And, and the women say, say, well, yes, we do have funds on hand, but we're not handing it over to you mm -hmm. uh, unless we have a say so and, and, and things. And, and, and essentially like women decided what the, the Lee monument in Richmond was going to look like, who was going to design it. 
But didn't Robert E. Lee oppose the building of monuments? He did. He did. And, you know, he dies only five years after the Civil War in 1870. But he he says uh, very clearly he doesn't think monuments are a good idea. You know, he said, OK, you could put something, a little marker in a cemetery. That seems to be OK. But he didn't think monuments, public monuments were a, a good idea because he felt like that, you know, reconciliation was more important. And uh, he felt that, you know, such monuments will keep keep open the wounds of war. Uh, but the the reality is, is that um, the lost cause was bigger than Robert E. Lee. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Professor Karen L. Cox of the University of North Carolina, whose latest book is No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. Um, now, suddenly we have a whole bunch of uh, a surge in Confederate monuments that were have been built since the year 2000, 35 new ones since then. And uh, over the past 25 years, especially since 2015, haven't states across the South passed laws to to protest, to, to protect Confederate monuments? I'm assuming uh, led by Republicans, mostly. Uh, yes. Uh, although Abraham Lincoln would probably be stunned. Yes, I imagine he would, because it's a completely different party than it was in his time. Um, yes, yeah, so there have been Confederate monuments built in every decade since the Civil War, including the last two in which there were, you know, 35 new monuments were, have been built. Um, you know, so there is. Uh, so is that a political thing? No. Well, you know, it could be is related to the rise of a neo-Confederate movement that began in the 1990s. Uh, and it's, you know, I think people understand it's, it may, it's, it's symbolic that that they're being built during a period of time when they, there's a, a sense that, you know, it's always about, you know, a backlash against racial progress of any kind of any that you can, you can imagine. So uh, these things are being built. Some are being added to uh, battlefields or battlefield parks. Uh, others are on private property. Uh, not me. I, I don't, I'm not aware of, of any that are in on uh, government grounds because the UDC got that had that covered in the early 20th century. And you're right, the 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 laws, the monument laws. Um, uh, the first one was 2000 uh, when the NAACP had boycotted South Carolina to get that the battle flag removed from the Capitol. And when it was removed, it was placed on on the grounds uh, on a flagpole. And they passed a law to prevent that from ever happening again, any kind of movement. Uh, and, and they counted the battle flag as a monument. Um, but it was in 2015, following the Charleston massacre, that, uh, and, and there was a test of that law uh, to remove the battle flag from, from the Capitol grounds, uh, which, which, the state did, but not without a lot of debate. And, uh, and, and when that happened, other states looked to, other Southern states looked to what happened in, in South Carolina and thought if they can get the battle flag off the grounds of the Capitol in South Carolina, what's coming next? 
And people were already concerned that, you know, monuments were going to be targeted. And within one month uh, in North Carolina, where I live, the state passed the, uh, one of those early, these monument laws, Heritage Protection Acts, as they're sometimes called, uh, with just, a, you know, just within weeks of this horrible uh, massacre at the church in Charleston. And, and in it, it says, you know, you can't move these monuments. So basically what these, these laws do is remove local control of these issues. So if a government, local government would like to, you know, a local community would like to move a monument, they're prohibited from doing so because of the state law. And these laws across the South are being passed by GOP dominated legislatures and they are passing laws that are, I mean, it's, it's the most anti-Southern thing, if I could, you know, in, his, in the history of the South, which is local control has always been important to white Southerners. And so for them to have passed these, these laws and say, no, we're going to remove local control on this particular issue. So, so you, what, what's happened is that rather than being, um, there is, because there's no legal recourse and because the legislatures, uh, le legislators are holding office because they're elected because of gerrymandering and voter suppression. So that you'd have representatives that can't like speak, you know, are not about to change their mind. You can't, there's no legal recourse. There's no amount of petitioning the legislature to get anything done. And so what ends up happening is there, it's not being, these monuments aren't being protected. They're actually inviting vandalism. In fact, many people protesting George Floyd's death in Minneapolis, a, a northern city, uh, attacked statues in Richmond, Virginia. That's correct, because at the time, uh, Virginia had one of these laws that prevented their removal. And even though they had been trying since since the Charleston massacre of 2015 and and people, I'm sure, you know, some people were confused about that. Why are they attacking these Confederate monuments? Well, the reason is they can, these, there's a long history that African-Americans understand that these statues represent white supremacy. And so in the same, so what happened in Minneapolis, um, in the South, they say, well, this is similar. These, these monuments symbolize all of that. They symbolize systemic racism, white supremacy. And, and police brutality, which is born out of those two things. So they then this is a, a way of, of expressing their frustration about what's happening in their own community. And, and it's, you know, and Confederate monuments are an ideal target because they have long represented white supremacy. What, uh, what is, have, have uh, local black residents been afraid to protest against the monuments in the past? They have, you know, uh, there, when um, the monument to Nathan Bedford Forrest in Memphis, Tennessee was removed, one of the black city councilmen said, you know, if I had protested this, this monument being placed in 1905, I could have been lynched. And he's right in the, you know, throughout the era of Jim Crow and before Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, um, black people's lives were in danger on a constant basis. And so they could not do something about Confederate monuments. They, it's not to say that they didn't critique them because they did in, in the 
you know, pages of their uh, of black newspapers. Um, but uh, it really isn't until the civil rights movement that you that that the needle begins to move and 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 it becomes a time when African Americans can say, you know, uh, this we need to get rid of these symbols off the grounds of government. Why did the UDC claim that educating children was their most important work? How did well, they uh, try to teach Southern white youths a reverence for Confederate principles? Uh, and what were those Confederate principles that were <laughs> that they wanted to teach them? Well, they so the UDC, you know, through what all of their uh, agenda um, involved children, even Confederate monuments, because children are always part of the ritualization of monuments at the unveilings and on every Confederate Memorial Day after that. So they're very much, uh, these women very much had an eye on the future of the South, not just the past, but the future. And, and children were, they saw that, and they actually refer to children as living monuments. Hmm. So uh, they, they essentially, uh, they have, you know, they cast a wide net. So they, um, they, they develop lesson plans for the schools. They involve children in the uh, celebration of Robert E. Lee's birthday in January. They form a group called the Children of the Confederacy, and they monitor textbooks and place pro-Confederate textbooks, uh, pro-Confederate books of all types in the public schools. And, and so what we have in the South is that children in the white public schools are are learning the lost cause narrative. They're learning that, you know, civil war is about states' rights and not slavery, uh, to honor their Confederate ancestors, uh, to refute, you know, to stand up against federal intrusion, for example, uh, and, uh, and to honor pe- men like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And because and, their portraits were placed in their classrooms. So it's, it's, um, and this, this, these lessons are repeated generation after generation until, until the 1970s when you still have uh, lost cause rhetoric in, in textbooks in public schools uh, in the South. And so even today, you'll hear politicians yeah. uh, say, oh, this wasn't about slavery, it's about states' rights. And, and this past Tuesday, Ray Garofalo Jr., Republican state representative in Louisiana, created a stir when he said that public schools should teach, quote, the good, the bad, and the ugly about slavery. And people said, what was the good about slavery? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that that's part of the narrative. Again, they think, well, we, you know, we fit, we fed and clothed our slaves. Our, you know, the I can't tell you how many people I've I interviewed many years ago that were members of the UDC who said, you know, my ancestors owned slaves, but we were good to our slaves. You know, that that kind of that, and that's that's how that's the narrative that they grow up on. They can't imagine that that it was as evil as, as everyone says it is, you know, and even though there's, there's plenty of evidence uh, that it was. Uh, And so, yeah, so that was an unfortunate uh, (laughs) statement to have made. Well, the, the largest Confederate memorial to date was built near Atlanta in 1970 and it featured Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis on horseback. 
And uh, what message was conveyed by the fact that Vice, then Vice President Spiro Agnew delivered the dedication speech? <laughs> well, yes, because it gives the imprimatur of the of the government, federal government, to a monument to the lost cause. I mean, that's that's like ultimate. You know, it's just saying. You know, even though his speech is filled with stuff about what the new South ought to be, you know, et cetera. I mean, the fact that he's there is validating that monument and validating the lost cause and validating a place where, you know, the Ku Klux Klan had organized, the second Klan organized. And so, um, and so it's, it's, uh, and, you know, and it's now, you know, of course, it's owned by the state of Georgia and it's not likely to go anywhere because it has long been a tourist attraction and now Georgia has a monument law. I don't know what yeah. they could, I mean, it would take a lot of effort to get that thing off the side of the mountain. Well, and then there's uh, the fact that uh, the vote may be slanted now because of new Georgia laws about who can vote. But uh, I want to remind our listeners that they're listening to Let It Pit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. In the winter of 65, we were hungry, just barely alive. I pitched my tent and Richmond hat fell. It was the time I remember oh so well. The night they drove old Dixie down, and the bells were ringing. We're back with Karen L. Cox, uh, who is a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, author of a number of books, including Dreaming of Dixie, How the South Was Created in American Popular Culture, and also Dixie's Daughters, the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Preservation of Confederate Culture. Her latest no Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice is uh, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Now, uh, after the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965, more African-Americans were elected to public office. How did they respond to the issue of, of Confederate symbols in their communities? Yeah, this is really interesting, and it shows the power of the Voting Rights Act um, because uh, it was the the first uh, uh, people elected to African Americans elected to office since Reconstruction, and and so the you know now they are there are people serving on city councils in their communities, and and so it's not the same thing. It's not business as usual. You know, you can't just you know, commemorate the Confederacy without some sort of question about it. And so um, I talk about um, uh, Harvey Gantt, who was uh, here in Charlotte, North Carolina. He, he became our first, uh, the first black mayor here and ran against Jesse Helms for the U.S. Senate in 1990. But in 1977, he was on the city council and and he brought to bear on that, on this effort to put a memorial at City Hall in, in Charlotte and, you know, 112 years after the Civil War to say, hey, this is not right. You know, I, I grew up in Charleston. I know what this, you know, he knows what the lost cause is. He knows that's a, uh, that narrative is, is also a false narrative. And 
and he, he, he talked very eloquently about, you know, the history that he understands and that, you know, had the, had the South won the war that, the, that uh, they would have, you know, the Confederacy would have continued to enslave his ancestors. And, and so what you're seeing, and not just with him, but in, uh, in other representatives, they're saying, you know, we can't, you know, this is not appropriate uh, in these, on a government grounds in these, what are meant to be democratic spaces. And, and so uh, I think it's really important because it's the first time in the, in the long history of Confederate memorialization that African-Americans um, finally have a rep have representatives that will speak their mind about what this means to the local black community. Although in uh, 1966, the James Meredith March, which was under the leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. and Stokely Carmichael uh, was, uh, had a main purpose to increase voter registration, but was it one of the earliest examples of a racial justice protest converging around a Confederate monument? That's that's what I argue in the book because I, I don't see any other evidence even um, prior to that. There could be, and I would hope people would come forward if it, with that if they do find it. But it it is it's it's you know so the Meredith March, uh, which was originally called the March Against Fear, and it was about registering voters. Um, made its way as it made its way through, you know, the Mississippi Delta, um, you know, when they would walk into, you know, march into a, in, in one community after another, the central gathering place was around a Confederate monument. It often stood on the grounds of the courthouse, which is where people are supposed to register to vote. So um, in, in that year, in, in that summer in 1966, they are, you know, they are confronting monuments in that way. And they are, um, and they are gathered in this, they're reclaiming this space um, uh, for democracy and for racial justice and for the right to vote. Aren't there counter monuments like the statue of James Meredith on the campus of the University of Mississippi in Oxford and the one with Arthur Ashe in Richmond, Virginia? Yes, there are there are uh, counter monuments, but they none of which have come without a fight or without you know some sort of backlash. Um, of course, you know the the at, in Richmond, um, the the monument to Arthur Ashe was uh, you know which was promoted heavily by Governor Wilder, uh, who was who was African American and who considered Arthur Ashe a friend of his. He he worked really hard to get that that monument placed. And it's meant to counter what's on there and to offer a different kind of history. And, uh, but it didn't come, you know, without a fight, you know, so there were, there was a, 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 one of the city councilmen said to put, you know, a monument to a, a black man on Monument Avenue was like putting a toilet in your living room. Ooh. Um, and, and, and he wasn't chastised for that? No, no. And so, so this is how strongly people felt about just about the Arthur Ashe, you know, uh, monument. And then, of course, you know, on the campus of uh, Ole Miss, I mean, the James Meredith monument, which, by the way, he, he didn't care for that statue, him personally, but it was on that there and, and some uh, fraternity uh, brothers um, who originally from Georgia uh, put a noose around the neck of the, of the Meredith statue essentially and i put this in quote lynching him um and uh, and so uh and so you know there it th these things may be there but they don't come without a lot of vitriol you know um coming from the other side 
um, because they, 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 you know, there are people that just absolutely resent um, any uh, reshaping or rethinking or reclaiming these spaces with something um, other than Confederate monuments. And some politicians have made Confederate monuments part of what they see as culture war. Oh, yes, yes. And that's been going on for a while. And I think that, um, yeah, they they recognize it as divisive. They recognize it as one of these things that are, you know, like, a, you know, that their, their supporters would get riled up about, you know, they're going to tear down these monuments or whatever. Um, yeah, so they've been doing that, I would say, probably, you know, since, I mean, since about 2012, I think, you know, I think really when it really takes off, honestly, is, you know, in 2015, because, you know, one of the things is the reason that I could be talking to you about this um, in New York is that um, this became a national debate in 2015 after the Charleston massacre. And then again with the Charlottesville. And of course, once again, with George Floyd murder last summer, um, it had long been just a regional debate, but Politicians have seen very quickly that that these this plays well among their base, and and uh, and which is why you know I think this is is not only a part of campaign rhetoric, but also uh, what's led to these these monument laws. And Confederate flags continue to be popular uh, across the country. We saw any number of them on January sixth and the Capitol building. But we, but they're popular even in northern states like New York. Yes, yes, they have been adopted by you know white supremacists and white nationalists across the country. The, the Confederate battle flag, in particular, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, you know it's you can find them throughout you know throughout the North, uh, and it's, it's amazing to me, especially since. Um, you know, it was Union troops and they're the ancestors of these people who saved who saved the United States, you know, who protected the Union and, and saved the Union. And, and to adopt the flag of uh, the Confederate battle flag is is really ironic, to say the very least. Well, they've even become popular with white supremacists and neo-Nazis in Europe and in Germany, where you can't carry a flag. Uh, that has a swastika on it, uh, neo-Nazis have just substituted Confederate flags. Yes, they have. And then, and then likewise, you know, white nationalists are carrying the Nazi flag, you know, the swastika <laughs> flag. In this country. Uh, in this country, yeah. Alongside, you know, of course, alongside the Confederate battle flag. These things go hand in hand. They understand, you know, that they... they they're very clear. It's like it's this isn't. I mean, when when these groups carry those emblems around, we know this is not about heritage. You know, some sort of nebulous southern heritage that they that is always often claimed um, about. You know, when it comes to protecting monuments, when people are waving these flags and they're carrying them into these situations as they did in Charlottesville, it's very clear. You know what they're about. You know, they, they know this history as well as anybody else. But haven't uh, any number of Southern states enacted Heritage Protection Acts? What's, uh, how many uh, Southern states have 
Those laws. Those those are the laws that that you referred to earlier where local governments can't make decisions about the future of statues in their public spaces? Correct. Well, almost all those states of the the former Confederacy have them, except for Virginia. Virginia, because there was a changing of the guard in the state legislature last year, uh, as of July 1st, that law was reversed and gave back local control. And that's why you see the most most monuments that have been removed have been in the state of Virginia. Um, Virginia seems intent on kind of these days on separating itself from the rest of the Confederate states. Yes, they're doing that. But it's only because of, you know, they have there's some Democratic control in the legislature. Uh, the rest of the South, where where these laws exist, um, it's, it's the complete opposite. We in North Carolina, we may have a Democratic governor, but the state legislature is dominated by the GOP, um, and who are elected through gerrymandering. That's just the the truth of the matter. Um, yeah. So and and so mo- all I don't know how many the laws of number the number of laws exist, but I can just tell you that throughout the states of the former Confederacy, they they do exist. And then, um, and they vary from state to state in terms how, of, you know, you know, like what penalties are. How did Donald Trump get involved in strengthening those Heritage Protection Acts? Well, you know, I think he, I think everyone would probably point to the, uh, his speech after Charlottesville and say, in saying that there were very nice people on both sides. And he I mean, said that, that, that removing that, Confederate monument to Lee was changing history. Yeah, changing history, and he, and he started with this whole slippery slope monument, uh, you know, argument that it's going to be Stonewall Jackson next. And at that point in time, there was nothing had been removed. Uh, there was, you know, the and and it's only and it still hasn't been removed in Charlottesville. They just uh, just now, I think, passed, um, you know, some ordinance there in Charlottesville that's going to allow for the removal of that monument um, that was that you know, that was the ruse for supposedly gathering in, in Charlottesville to begin with. But yeah, so Trump has done, a, you know, he, he sees that. He sees, oh, this is, you know, he can play play up on that, on that issue. Um, and then it was followed by, of course, his, his uh, executive order about a national garden of heroes where there would be monuments, you know, uh, some park where there would be monuments to all these uh, American heroes. And, um, and so... Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, the, the folks who arrived in Charlottesville for the Unite the Right rally um, said publicly that they were there because, you know, they felt like Trump had their back, you know, and that's why, and that it couldn't have happened without him. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Professor Karen L. Cox of the University of North Carolina. Her latest book, No Common Ground, Confederate monuments and the ongoing fight for racial justice. How do you uh, answer people who say that uh, we're just uh, that removing a monument is erasing history? Yeah, uh, that, as a historian, who <laughs> this is easy for me <laughs> because. Um, First of all, uh, monuments are memorials, and memorial key to that word is memory, and memories are faulty. And and uh, 
that's what they're about. They're about memory. They're not about history. And no monument ever taught a history lesson. So where do you know, you will always be able to learn the history of monuments like anything else that may have been removed, you know, um, or that that no longer exists. You you have uh, in this case, you we have photographs, we have postcards, we have the speeches that were given during the unveiling. Um, we have history books that tell us these things, and we have archives that tell us these things. We you have know, your book. I, Yes, I have my book. Yes, my book. What you know tells the history. So the history is not being erased. That's not what. That's not what is happening. And even when they were erected, they weren't about history. Uh, you know, monuments are often about the generation that places them there and what their values are. Uh, not you. Not you know. And, and part of it is like, well, we want to get these things up before this generation dies off. Um, because we want to leave something for future generations to remember them by. But they're, you know, but it's really about them. You know, it's really about that generation, those people who raise the money um, and, and for, for these things and are, are part of the, the whole unveiling and the rituals around them. But uh, yeah, this is, there's no, you're not going to erase history. I'm going to still be able to teach about the history of Confederate monuments and people, you know, generations, uh, you know, to come, we'll be able to do that. We'll be able to learn about them, research them, write about them, um, because that's not the way history works. You know, does it doesn't the, just if you remove a monument, you know, lots, you know, there are, you know, lots of uh, black history sites that have been literally erased. Mm. Um, right. And we, 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 we can find out and we can learn about those through the, you know, other avenues. Well, does the removal of monuments necessarily mean destroying them? Haven't some statues been moved to storage or to museums or to cemeteries for Confederate soldiers? The, and it's, yes. And as a matter of fact, that the vast majority of them have not been destroyed. You know, there's this there's this like false narrative that that's happening. They have, in, in many cases, when they've been removed, there are a variety of things that have happened. They're going into storage. Um, they may end up on a battlefield park. They, um, some of them have been returned to the United Daughters of the Confederacy and who will have them place them on private property. Others have been moved into cemeteries. Um, whether or not a museum decides to take them is a, a completely different uh, thing because uh, museums have collections policies. They're not necessarily uh, collecting Confederate monuments and it also then will put a burden on a museum, you know, to say, to take on these statues as well, because they're still divisive symbols. Um, and, you know, if they're on the grounds of a museum, which is being paid for by, you know, city or county um, uh, funds, then it becomes problematic again for museums. So I, I think what uh, we're going to see is, you know, if, if local control is ever returned to communities, um, then I think their local communities, because these are local objects, will will be, have to become creative about, you know, what it is they decide that they want to do with them. So uh, the U at, yeah, go ahead. The UDC still uh, exists. Uh, weren't they largely replaced by the sons of Confederate veterans, a, a male group? 
Yeah, so they've got their roles have been reversed. They both both organizations exist. The UDC was more powerful in the early 20th century, and and the Sons of Confederate Veterans has had more influence in in the early in in the 21st century. The thing is, though, I mean, it's like there have been more radical, you know, neo Confederate groups that have emerged and that challenge uh, the Sons of Confederate Veterans to go to be even more kind of radical in their defense of, of uh, statues that, you know, local militias are like surrounding statues to defend them from being, you know, vandalized and, and, and the like. So, but yeah, the UDC exists, but it's a, a really a shell of its former self. I mean, in the early 20th century, these women were really powerful people and they could, you know, they could get, get things done today. Uh, they have a website. Uh, who knows what the number of their membership is? Uh, I would say uh, less than, you know, I would say less than 20,000, maybe less than, than that, far less than that. And uh, their only response uh, to what happened in Charlottesville was a, a statement that's on their website that they refused to speak to the press. So men have stepped into that void. Um, and so especially sons of Confederate veterans. Should we be drawing a parallel between the Confederacy's lost cause version of history and the refusal of Donald Trump and his supporters to acknowledge the results of, of the 2020 election? Well, there definitely are similarities. It's, it's, and, and it's the refusal to acknowledge defeat, the rewriting of the narrative, you know, to say this is, you know, this is not what happened. It happened this way, even though you can see for yourself what, you know, we know what happened, uh, but the, you know, the big lie that the election was stolen, um, you know, uh, yeah. So there are these similarities and the, you know, and, and then, you know, then Trump becomes this, you know, the, you know, the 21st century version, you know, for, for his followers of a Teflon hero, of some sort and in the way that Robert E. Lee was a Teflon hero, you know, it's, it's like they, no matter what, um, if it was Lee, like leading an army uh, of the Confederacy to, to help maintain the system of slavery, he, he's, he's not seen that way by his supporters and followers. And, and likewise of all the many, you know, crimes that known or unknown, uh, committed by you know the former president, he's he's like he's like Teflon. He seems to just keep going, and and nothing none of this is sticking to him. Well, we'll see what happens uh, yeah. <laughs> after Rudolph Giuliani's uh, the investigation into what he's yeah, been doing. I, yeah, I read that. I just like it'll be interesting <laughs> to see what happens. Um, but the thing is, it's like that divisiveness, though that belief of among people that he, you know, he could do no wrong. You know, even if legal, legally that can all be proven, et cetera, um, you know, the fact that, that, that he, there is a group of people that just, you know, refuse to believe facts. Well, the Republicans enlisted their only uh, African-American senator to uh, offer a rebuttal to the president's speech, and he said there's no systemic racism in America. And he was 
thoroughly dragged <laughs> across all over Twitter uh, when he said that, you know, by people from South Carolina, African-Americans who live in the state. Uh, and he, you know, he's, he has uh, uh, faced a lot of criticism for that. And, uh, but yeah, this is typical, you know, we're just, we'll put out our, you know, one representative, you know, that is a person of color to speak up and say these things. I mean, I, you know, why someone does that is it's got to be there, you know, somebody is, it could be because of his um, individual ambitions that he wanted to say, say as much. Karen L. Cox is an award-winning historian, distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians and professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and uh, the author of a number of books, the one we've been discussing, No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice, published uh, in the Ferris and Ferris imprint of the University of North Carolina Press. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman for preparing the interview you just heard and to our live engineer Reggie Johnson and my executive producer Jesse Lent for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you knew this program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support the station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to wbai.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique, in-depth, one-hour interviews we bring you on this program coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Remember that WBAI relies 100% on listener donations, so we we hope that you'll step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to help keep the show in this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's entirely listener-sponsored on the air by making a tax-deductible charitable donation. And everyone who has stepped up to support this station uh, in the name of our show, thank you. We're off on Monday, but we hope you'll join us again on a Tuesday show when Manoush Shafiq, the director of the London School of Economics, will discuss her new book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract for a Better Society. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Tuesday.